Hi, everybody. Welcome um, here in this six-part series, which we're calling Agents of Change. We really want to draw attention to exceptional individuals who are changing things up. We're curious, as we hope you are, kind of what's motivated them and what's drawn them into the web of finding solutions that fit problems that maybe we didn't even know we had. So they're changing the world, as I like to say, as they found it. Um, because Ed and I, we're going to introduce Ed Lynn here in a second, are from long careers in the nonprofit world, we've really kind of come to see that change really happens from from within when people drive organizations to excellence and industries that we know about that are ripe for new ideas. So we hope you'll find what you hear about the journeys just as fascinating as we do and that it will inspire you. So I thought maybe we'd uh, take this opportunity to have Ed tell you a little bit about himself. Um, Ed, Lynn and I have known each other for numbers of years now um, and it's been fun to think about co-hosting this together. So. Well, Nancy, uh, yeah, I was thrilled when you asked me. Um, as Nancy mentioned, she and I have known each other for a long, long time. In fact, she's responsible for me getting into the nonprofit sector. Um, when I'm not working with Change Lab and Nancy, um, I'm actually the, the major gifts officer at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. Um, but Nancy has been a friend and a mentor for many, many years, and uh, I delight any opportunity to, uh, to, to work with her. So thanks for having me here. So Cece, now as our honored guest, um, we really want to make this about you, but um, we know a little bit about how you started out, um, kind of how you got, like all good Hollywood stories, got yourself to Los Angeles, um, you know, interested in becoming an actor, and we know you did some, some voiceovers, I'm fascinated with all of that, um, but maybe tell us a little bit about how you got yourself out of your hometown and out to LA and started this sort of journey that you're on. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk with you guys today. Uh, so yeah, I'm originally from Wisconsin, a small mm. town in southern Wisconsin, and um, I always knew that I wanted to come to Los Angeles, and I visited once when I was living in Chicago, I was bartending in Chicago, I visited LA once for three days, and yep, that's it. I was like, this is where I'm, I'm going to be, and I... I, I, my dad is a woodworker, and so I've been done woodworking all my life. We had like a um, shop in the basement. I always made everything. You know, in college, I made my own bed. I was always putting up <laughs> shelves, and I had a whole thing of tools that people would borrow all the time. So the woodworking and building things is, has been a constant. It's not a, a thing that just happened. But when I came out to Los Angeles, I was doing a lot of commercials and voiceovers, and that mm -hmm. was really fun. That was uh, a great time and very successful for me. But then the industry kind of changed. There was a strike and a lot of things went non-union. When technology advanced uh, with the voiceover stuff, everyone could do it at home. Mm -hmm. And so everybody could do it. Mm -hmm. And it became a lot less fun for me to do. And the commercial, the on-camera commercials became not as fun for me either. So I went back to school for woodworking um, here in uh, California at El Camino College and started my business. So, um, of course, you know I'm going to talk to you more about that, but, um, <laughs> I, you know, maybe because I'm fascinated with L.A. in these ways, but um, so when you came to L.A. and wanted to sort of get in the industry, how did, what did you do? Do you find an agent? How do you break in? I think, you know, Lots of people are kind of curious about that. 
I don't know how it is now. I think the industry has changed a, a lot, especially now with social media and everything being online. I think a lot of people now get representation because of mm -hmm. their presence online. And when I moved here in 1998, that was not a, a thing. Ah. Um, luckily, I had gotten my SAG card in Chicago through um, a couple commercials. So that was that's usually a big stumbling block mm -hmm. for people or, or a, uh, something that they have to get in order to you know you know get those high paying jobs and that's kind of hard for people to break into so i was really lucky in that respect that i already had my sag card and i got an agent i think doing a um showcase an acting oh. showcase because uh -huh. I, I was in uh, like an acting class oh. and then somebody put together this showcase i did the showcase and i got an agent through that and then you know booked a few commercials and then you get a manager so i was Really lucky. I, I think, you know, very, very lucky in how it happened for me. But I have no idea how someone would break into it now. I think it's a lot harder. It's a tough gig, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. What kind of um, acting work did you do before you came out this way? Were you in plays or how did you get involved, I guess? Yeah, I was always in plays, like growing up. Uh -huh. um, I'm from a really small town, so there wasn't that much opportunity. It was more like when I was in grade school, I would, you know, do the plays and uh, if they needed a kid in the high school productions, they would, I would do something like that. Huh. Like that we did Sound of Music, you know, you could, they had to, you know, actually get small children. So, right. and then I would go like to like a theater camp workshop type thing, whatever was available there. And so I always kind of did like musical theater. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I came out here, I knew that I wanted to do not musical theater. I didn't want to do theater. I wanted to do like TV. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, the commercials and the voiceovers were really fun and I was good at it and mm. I had some success in it. So it was a really fun time. I'm always fascinated by people who have the wherewithal to uproot and move across the country. I mean, was that experience what you had expected it to be? Was this really the dream when you got here or? Oh God, that's a good question. I don't know what I was expecting when um, I think I just wasn't expecting anything. And so when I moved here, I didn't know anybody. Wow. There was one person that I knew that I worked at a restaurant with him and he said, you know, you can sleep on my floor if you want. And so I did. Uh -huh. I slept on his floor, like on a sheet in the corner of his living room with a few roommates. And then uh, another thing, getting lucky, a girlfriend of mine who I had worked with, who I thought was moving to San Francisco, ended up just being back in Los Angeles, where she's from, in a high-rise in Westwood, a very fancy <laughs> high-rise in Westwood. And her wow. parents were in Europe, and they had, she had this big empty place. And she's like, oh, no, come stay with me. And so that was my introduction to Los Angeles, was going to places like Spago. And, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I was like, well, this is it. This is, I've made it. Yes. Yeah. So again, super lucky to know that person and to have such a, a, a welcome to Los Angeles and have such a, like, a wonderful family that took care of me. I see. Mm -hmm. I see. And with, was the woodworking thing at all in your mind uh, as you were thinking? Or have you... At that time, no, no, yeah. that came in a lot later. Mm -hmm. That came in, I was really busy with it, with the voiceovers for a long time. I would still build stuff in my house. Like I'd still like build my own bed and, mm. and, wow. and stuff like that. Um, and I, would, I, I was really good at that time. Like upcycling was really a big thing. Those DIY blogs and all of that stuff. And so I was always making something into something else, but I wasn't making anything you know, from scratch and 
so I was still doing stuff on the side, but I wasn't ever thinking of it as a business or something that would carry me further. I see. Mm -hmm. Did you have some sort of defining moment where you went, I'm just not going to invest anymore in the voiceovers and the commercial work, and I'm just not getting the work I need to stay alive? But Yeah. Well, yes and no. I changed categories um, commercially. Like I, I, like I spoke about before with the voiceovers, that's what happened with that. It was like not fun anymore. You couldn't really get work that paid anything anymore because everything was non-union. With the on-camera commercials, I switched categories. I went from like young hip to young mom. And that must have been a blow. It sucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was not because also like, you know, Hollywood mom is not the same as real life mom. So you're very young when they classify you as young mom. And I, you know, I don't have children and um not super close with anybody who had children mm. at, at the time. So I didn't I just didn't book anymore yeah. on camera. And I tried a couple of things like changing my hair, you know, to be you know more mom like. And I bought a bunch of you know plaid <laughs> shirts, you know, that everybody was wearing. At, you know, uh, but that when you get into that category, then people actually do have children, and they like to book people with their children because uh. they look alike. Yeah. They can. It's easier to be on set with somebody. They can tell them what to do. And so, yeah, I have a lot of friends whose kids' college funds are funded mm -hmm. because they were actors and they, you know, did commercials together. Yeah. So yeah, I just realized uh, this isn't working. I'm not. I'm not making any money. Mm -hmm. It's not fun for me to be in these waiting rooms mm -hmm. when I know that. You know, they're just going to book somebody who has their kid with them. And so it did take a while for me to get out of it, though, because it was my identity for so long. Sure. And so I did try a bunch of stuff to figure it out. And then I when I started taking woodworking classes, that's when I was like, oh, yeah, I'm done. So well, like, what were you trying? <laughs> what, like to like to to get out or to. You know. Oh, like, oh, I was trying different things. Like, like I said, like the hair. You know, like I was oh. trying to be like more like a mom. Got so it. I tried doing different things gotcha. to to be able to book uh -huh. and it wasn't working. I see. Mm -hmm. right. It always reminds me of that defining moment when you're in the grocery store and the guy stops calling you miss and starts calling you ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like a tragic, like it's, grown up thing that happens. It's not fair, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's way not fair. <laughs> um. So I'm kind of curious, you told us about your father had, um, did some woodworking, um, which I think you've told me earlier was in your, ba was in your basement mm -hmm. as a kid. But um, what really drove you to wood maybe other than that? I mean, it's, it's clearly attached itself to your creative spirit, but you've had creativity in your acting and your voice, but you know, were there other things? Were you interested in jewelry making or what sort of, got you to, I think it's going to be wood. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, no, I was really never interested in anything else like metalworking or mm -hmm. jewelry or ceramics. Um, yeah, I think it was just that's what I knew and I was comfortable with it and I always did like it. So it was just, and I, building something and having it a finished product, you know, that sense of achievement and mm -hmm. satisfaction you know, especially if it's a bigger project is a really good feeling. And so I think I gravitated towards that. So I'm a little curious about, you know, uh, 
what kind of big things you've made. I mean, um, I think of wood as, you know, I know people that do some turned wood things and the lathe, mm -hmm. but I know that's not what you're doing. Um, what, uh, you know, do you, have you taken commission projects or what, the, yeah, what kind of things I, are you working on that are big stuff? Uh, yeah, I, I, I did some stuff, some like commission stuff. Um, I made a, a, a bay window seat for some friends of a friend's, and that was interesting. That you know, because I, I had never done it before, mm -hmm. and that's when I kind of decided I did not like to do install projects. It's it's you know going into somebody else's space and and doing something in their space uh -huh. is kind of uncomfortable, especially if they're like watching you. Because when you're making something it doesn't always fit the first time around or it doesn't always go the way you want it. And that's part of what woodworking is, is problem solving. Uh -huh. So you try something, it doesn't work. And then so you do something else or you try to do it. There's so many ways to do things in woodworking. And it's just kind of like whatever way you, uh, whatever way you prefer. And so, um, you know, having somebody kind of watching you do it, <laughs> when they don't really understand the process, yeah. it looks like you don't know what the heck you're doing. <laughs> and so, uh, I've you know, done like cabinets and, you know, in my own shop, I've built like a, my big, it's like a giant, uh, workspace table. And it's like on one side it has all drawers and on the other side it has like shelves and doors. And it also like, um, is my outfeed table for my uh, table saw and it's on rollers so I can roll it around everything on in my shop is on casters so I can clean oh. around it and move stuff around if, if need be so that kind of stuff uh, was kind of not my jam the, uh -huh. the big stuff especially if you're doing it by yourself you know because you need someone to help you turn this thing over sure or carry it somewhere or uh, just help you clamp something up so when you're by yourself the the big stuff is not really fun <laughs> or you know, and, or or easy. Well, I imagine with the install work that the client often has a vision that may or may not align with yours. Was mm -hmm. that ever an issue, sort of the battle of the wills, or? It has been for other things. Uh -huh. I had a. It's it's very doing custom stuff is very funny because either people don't have an idea of what they want uh -huh. or they don't have any idea of how things are made so they don't realize the time and the money that goes into it. Sure. And they think I'm doing it so it's cheaper than something that's mass produced when really it's the opposite. Right. And so, I, or I have somebody that's, I had, I was doing um, a project for a jewelry maker and she wanted some like wood displays and she had seen my work and she's like, I love your style. I love that, you know, just do, do whatever you think. Uh-huh. And that's, so I did, and she didn't like it. <laughs> right. And, but also couldn't vocalize what she didn't like about it. So sure. I said, okay, so what, do, what don't you like about it? What can I change? You know, and so that becomes, that becomes an issue of people not having an idea of what they want more than I would love it if somebody knew exactly what they wanted. Sure. They could tell me exactly what they wanted. That uh -huh. that would be ideal. It's yeah. it's when people don't know what they want that becomes an issue. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand that completely. It's got to be most people, though. Don't you think? Like, we've experienced that plenty. Sure, people who can't articulate what it is they want. They know they want something, mm -hmm. but uh, can't say it. And that's 
And I was having this conversation with a friend just recently. I think that that's why babies cry. They know what they, they need something, but mm -hmm. they can't articulate it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's hugely frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, matching expectations is, um, you know, is something that you really don't want to get into very often. Yeah. It's just not fun from yeah. either side of it, right? Sure. Like the other person that can't figure yeah. out what you want. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it's like most creative things, a lot of people will just say, well, I don't know, but I like your stuff, but yeah. I'll sort of know it when I see it. And meanwhile, you're doing all of this there. work. Yes. Yeah. yeah for, for nothing. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, well, people don't recognize how difficult things are and just assume, well, you yeah. can change that, right? I mean, it's not a big deal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, well, and it's not it, their fault. I mean, it's, it's no, not like yeah, these people are doing it maliciously or <laughs> or they're dum dums. It's just right. you know that's not their expertise. Mm -hmm. So of course they they don't know. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and there's nothing like delivering something for a client that you know they're a little crestfallen over, right? Mm -hmm. No like, fun oh, either. What sure. A challenge. Mm -hmm. that oh yeah. Must be. Um, <laughs> interesting. Um, so I know you've turned your attention to something that's very, for me, it feels very tender, but. Um, I thought for our audience, it would be really interesting to talk about it. Um, it's really the part of the agent of change that's that's intrigued me the most. Um, so, and especially coming out of the pandemic, I think like, like all of us now, I know that we feel a certain tenderness in talking about those that have died and have been ill and mm. those that couldn't see each other for such mm -hmm. a long time. We read those stories, but now more and more, I think many of us are experiencing what this has felt like for people. Of course, we're reading a lot about how depressed <laughs> many people are, and it's just a reality of this last year that we've all gone through. But, um, you know, and I always remind myself nothing like this has happened in a hundred years. Mm -hmm. Who would have ever imagined we're living through another Spanish type flu? It's true. You know, you just can't even comprehend what, what that's been like. Mm. Um, so, because it's personal, uh, I decided that, you know, you're. We really should talk about your your beautiful plantern. I think it's a concept that's intriguing. It's interesting, and I think a lot of us would like to know what what brought you to that place. You have this incredible background, clearly this wonderful gift, this talent that you have shared with us. But um, what what made it tender for you? Maybe what what drove you into that place? And of course, tell us a little bit more about what that is. Well, it was kind of an accident how I got into it, but it was a very happy accident. So what I make, the planterns, they call them, they are um, geometric uh, cremation urns that have a plant on top. Oh. And then this, so the top is solid, the bottom is made like a box to hold uh, the cremains, and it's held together by two very strong magnets. Mm. So it doesn't look like an urn. Mm -hmm. It looks like just a planter in your house. And... I got into it, like I said, very accidentally. I used to make these geometric planters out of the offcuts from my furniture making. And it was like gluing pieces of wood together and putting a hole in it for a plant. Oh. And so uh, a friend of mine's uh, father had passed away and they were dispersing the cremains amongst family members. And they said, I really like your planters. Can you just make a, a few of a, a few of them for us and just put an extra hole in it, and we'll just stuff the ashes in there? <laughs> and I said, No, no, I'll, I'll 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 design something for you. Like, let me like this is actually interesting. You know, this is a custom job that 
I'd obviously never done before. <laughs> and I was like, let me, let, me, let me design something. So I designed that. It's a very early prototype uh -huh. um, where you could put the ashes underneath and the plant on top. And I put it up on Instagram, and I got a lot of feedback on it. You must have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and I mean, immediately. Yeah. From my pet morticians and uh -huh. uh, a death doula, who is my mm. friend now, and other people saying, like, where do we get these? How do we buy these? What are these? And so then that led me into doing a really deep dive on death uh -huh. and the death care industry, because mm. I didn't really know anything about the death care industry. And so it was about a year-long quest of research and development of talking to people about uh, you know going to a crematory and mm -hmm. seeing the process and seeing actually how much is a person you know uh -huh. how many wow. how much you know yeah. so i because i had to research what sizes to make because mm -hmm. i do make different sizes because i make them for pets and for people mm -hmm. and so i had to figure out what are the appropriate sizes and how can i make this so i can make them over and over again you know mm -hmm. d deciding the construction of them that it's easy to make a lot of them, you know, if I was, you know, to ever to get super busy, like how do I do this kind of in a, um, scalable manner? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah, that, and then I did a Kickstarter after the, after I figured out what I wanted to make and, um, and what materials I wanted to use, I did a Kickstarter that got funded and then that, um, led me to just pivot full time to making the, the plan turns. Wow. And so that was a year, almost a year, exactly a year before the pandemic. Uh -huh. And so at that time I was still working at a restaurant and doing the, you know, doing the woodworking as well. So it was not making you know, that much money. Mm -hmm. I, it was not enough to survive, you know, especially here in Los Angeles. <laughs> and uh, so then when the pandemic started and I lost my job, mm -hmm. that's when I decided to go full force. I, you know, I could either take this kind of money that I had saved up and do I live off this for a while or do I, throw that into advertising and marketing yeah. and strike while the iron is hot, so to speak. And, uh, and it's, and it worked. Bravo. Love that. <laughs> yeah, that was another, <laughs> another big, you know, another big leap. Sure. But it paid off. What a scary thing. It I was mean, very to, scary. To be on the precipice and make the decision about which way to go. Mm -hmm. You did. Well, good for you. Especially, thank you. Especially when nobody knew what the heck was going on. You know, that was right at the big, you know, because I lost, you know, restaurant workers lost their jobs first, basically. Yeah. So I was done March 15th. And so it was a few, it was a couple weeks of, okay, what now? What do we do? You know, it's <laughs> some, some sleepless nights and then, yeah, deciding to take that to take that route. I bet uh, somewhat of a silver lining, right? I mean, I think most of us have experienced that with the pandemic. It's forced a total change in your thinking. I mean, I'm just wondering mm -hmm. if there hadn't been a pandemic, do you think that you would be, you would have made that leap or? I don't know. It's hard to I, say. I right? kind of doubt it. I don't know. Because yeah. I wouldn't, you know, when I was working at the restaurant, you know, to make ends meet, I didn't really have that much time mm -hmm. to be in the wood shop. Yeah. And so I don't know, would I have been able to scale it up if I were still, you know, had, had a, a restaurant job or the energy for it, you know, to have that, you know, because both both of those things take up a lot of energy, you know, yeah. dealing with with uh, people and, and the public and, and the emotional labor that goes with that takes a lot of energy. And then also being in the shop, not only is it manual labor, but also that creative energy. So I don't I don't know if it I mean, it certainly wouldn't have happened as quickly as it did. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sure. 
When you were, I'm kind of curious about when you were doing your research, um, what's out there? I mean, we sort of know just what we see mm -hmm. on television and anything we've all personally experienced. I, I would say there's very little choice, but why do you think that is? Or what, what did you find and then why do you think that is? Yeah, that the death care industry is going through a change right now. It's um, a lot of people are trying to make you know the death positive movement happen. It's mostly women led, which was very lucky for me because I got a lot of help. Women are very generous mm. with their help, and so I got a lot of great advice um, from people, um, especially my friend Jill Shock, who's a death doula LA. Of so she had so much knowledge to give me that she just gave me for free, you know, right. willingly. So that helped me so much. I'm so grateful to her. But it, the death care industry has been the same for a long, long time. And I was going to say that there probably has been very little innovation in the death mm -hmm. industry. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's, and things are starting to change. You know, yeah. now like cremation is becoming more popular. Mm. And now there, there's a couple states who have adopted, are, are allowing human composting. Hmm. of human uh, humans to be composted. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's also aquamation, which is an alter, alter, alternative to cremation. Oh. Yeah, it's a, your body is put into a um, like a big tank and then uh, water and lye are swished around mm -hmm. and then all you're left with is the bones and then the bones are pulverized. And then the runoff is supposedly, supposed to be, um, it's supposed to be better for the environment. Hmm. Um, than cremation because cremation does take a, a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was finding stuff out like that. <laughs> Who knew? You Who know, knew? Well, yeah. I, I didn't know what aquamation was. <laughs> I didn't know what, it, what it, any of this stuff was, or like what a natural burial was, or that you could, you know, you don't have to embalm a body. Mm. It's not a law. Mm -hmm. You don't have to. But if you do embalm a body, you have to purchase a vault, a casket, and a vault mm. because it can't seep into the groundwater. But if you have a natural, you know, green funeral, you can you know, put the body, you know, with some dry ice and some, you know, oils, and and you can have that have the person in your house with you. Yeah, I, I always thought um, embalming was automatic, mm -hmm. but it's not. Yeah. And you know, those are you know horrifying chemicals, you know. And I understand like why some, you know, there's you know so many different ways for people to experience death and to experience their grief and to process it. Um, but if you if that's not something that you that you want, you don't have to do it. And so it's kind of I I kind of make the comparison is it's kind of like riding a giant ship. You know, it's kind of like turning a giant ship around, like that ship that got stuck in the canal. Yes. Just kind of you know, it's happening little by little by little that thing, and and that people are having more conversations about death. Mm -hmm. And because I think that's really why it hasn't changed in so long is because people don't know what the alternatives are because they're squicked out by yeah. talking about it. What do you think sort of, uh, what did you find or what do you think is happening in the mortuary business itself? I mean, many of us have had the experience of meeting with the mortuary director mm -hmm. and they direct you to certain things and you know, all of this, it's really not an open conversation. That's super you. fun. <laughs> no, it's not super fun. But, but um, I think more people I know are beginning to make their plans mm -hmm. ahead of time yes. so that nobody in their family has to make decisions in such a level of grief. But right. do you think the mortuary industry is becoming open to some of these new ideas or 
or concepts I, or whatever? Do, do they offer up your urn as a possibility? Or my urns are not good for mortuaries because they don't. Is that doesn't make them money? Mm -hmm. You know, they make money on you know the caskets and 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 um, the vaults. So you know. If I wholesale my $500 urn to them, they're only making $250 where they're making thousands of dollars on a casket. So it doesn't really make sense for them to, to offer my urns. I think that... What if somebody comes in wanting cremation? I don't know. Ah, I, I don't okay. know. I think, I think it depends on what, yeah, what they... I mean, I do know that mortuaries do offer urns, but it's, you know, the mass produced urns mm -hmm. you know, that, that they can get, you know, that are very urny looking, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> they, they, you, you can tell what that is right away. No, so I think they offer mantle, You would know exactly what yeah. that was. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is one, another reason I, that huh. people do like my urns or buy my urns. And I hear this a lot from people of like, I just didn't want this painful reminder mm -hmm. that I had to look at. Uh, all the time and also you don't have to have that conversation if somebody comes in your house and they see that on the mantle you can have you can have the, the if they say oh that's a cool planter you can decide to have the conversation or not or, or not. not yeah mm -hmm. I can see that yeah I'm a little intrigued because um you know I think of maybe exactly that reason is you know you're uh, I read somewhere where uh, a large majority of um ashes that come home with family members get accidentally or maybe on purpose thrown out mm -hmm. because people sort of either don't move to the classic urn that we see in the movies all the time mm -hmm. that sort of thing you know oh i'll do it i'll next time next year i'll find the right one you know whatever happens um or maybe they think they're going to spread them somewhere and then they never get around to it yeah. but um you know this i really love what you're doing because i think it is sort of shaking things up it's like it's forcing somebody to do that, that recognition that we all want, but in a way in which it fits into your life and it's a gentle reminder. Right, right. right. And I think that's sort of what maybe I hope that this industry is moving towards and more and more people will start asking for it because I think this sort of harshness that we've been struggling with of the whole funerary business is um, it's... It, it doesn't leave a good feeling uh, with you. Mm -hmm. You've gone through it. Um, Going back to what you were talking mm -hmm. about before, I have heard it is so common that people yeah. don't know what to do with the ashes. They mm -hmm. don't, you know, and grief is different for everybody. Yes. They yeah. might not be able to deal with it right away. So it goes in a closet mm -hmm. or it goes in a garage mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, I, I somebody had their grandmother's ashes in the trunk of their car oh. you know, that, that I knew. <laughs> I, I have friends that have lost their dad completely. Oh. They, they can't find him. Oh, yeah. my goodness. And yeah, I've heard those stories yeah, too. Yeah, it's, it's so common. Mm. And so my, yeah, right now my business is, is kind of both. It's either mm. people who haven't been able to find mm. something that they liked mm -hmm. and have had the ashes sitting around or someone has just passed away and they've been looking online and they, and they found my hmm. urns. So it's kind of 50, 50 right now. And I think that's happening a lot after, after the pandemic, a hmm. lot of people had to have their loved ones cremations delayed because hmm. of COVID because they were so backed up. And so, you know, and they weren't able to have maybe a memorial service. Hmm. And so now as things are opening up, they'll be able to have those memorial services and we'll be looking, you know, for something, you know, to, mm -hmm. to either 
yeah, like you said, like spread the ashes yeah. somewhere or, or somewhere to store them that they like. But that is, I hear that so mm-hmm. much about, you know, of, of, of missing ashes or mm. stuff yeah, in the closet. I can really see more and more people coming into the recognition that they're in control mm-hmm. of what they really want for themselves or family members. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're going to start searching for alternatives that are much more like them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've moved into the birthing process to doulas and all kinds <laughs> of true. water births and all kinds of great mm-hmm. things. So um, I have a feeling that yeah, you've definitely lit a match um, into conversations that um, people are going to start having. Um, bravo to that. Um, Thank you. Tell us a little bit about the pet cemeteries. I lost a pet in the last six months, but um, what what's been their reaction? Are they... Um, interested in working with you or I do what have more could a, be done? I do have a couple aquamation places mm-hmm. that I work with. Um, both women rum r- women women sorry, <laughs> take that back. Both of them are, are uh, women owned. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they do kind of like a drop ship with them where they have my urns on display and that's one of their um, choices that mm-hmm. they offer. And they do offer because aquamation is so new and I think people that are really uh, looking for something like that. They're looking for, a, you know, a better solution that they're kind of probably more likely to look for like a more modern solution for storing the ashes mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, I work with a, a place in Seattle and a place in San Diego and I, I make urns for them. And so that is more they're Yeah. They're not making their money again, like on the caskets mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So they're more likely to, to, to wholesale my urns and, and to, and to carry them. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to be able to, you know, have that conversation with them and, um, and since they're close here on the West Coast, I can do different stuff for them. I can do some custom stuff for them if they like. And it's, it's nice to work with those people. What kind of custom work have you been asked to do? What do you- well, mostly, sometimes people ask for like inscriptions or uh-huh. something like that. And I, 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 you know, when they have it on their own, I tell them, you know, you can take it to a laser etcher and do whatever you want with it. But the whole point of them for me is that they don't look like an urn. Yeah. And so I don't offer engraving. But I do custom wood combinations. Uh-huh. And sometimes I have uh, like a limited amount of a certain type of wood. Mm-hmm. And so I'll offer that to people who want something custom. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I work with a lumber yard here in Los Angeles that takes trees that are diseased or set for demolition that usually would have gone into the landfill, but they take them, dry them, cut them up, and sell them to woodworkers. Uh-huh. So it's like a limited uh, run of some local wood and mm-hmm. so then i'll do a kind of like a, a limited run of something or if somebody wants something a little different that's offered on my website i give them some choices of like oh here's some wood that you could choose from and so or maybe they want this shape but they want it a little bigger mm-hmm. or a little smaller you know maybe they had somebody um you know because the large urn is 180 cubic inches which will hold a whole person but maybe their mom was 100 pounds only and they don't want <laughs> such a large urn well i can make it a little smaller for them i can scale that down so it's mostly taking what i already make and tweaking it a little bit i see mm-hmm. and is um sustainability and environmentalism uh, an element of you're mindful of that in your business yeah definitely yeah. um especially you know where i get my wood um one lumber yard that i get from is everything is fse certified mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one is 
is rescued wood. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I offer also like muslin bags that are in it to hold the ashes in the bottom of the urn. Those are made in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're muslin. So everything is, everything is biodegradable. Mm-hmm. All of my finishes are either zero VOC. Like I have a soy base sealer that I use. Mm-hmm. So those urns can be buried because sometimes people have the urn for a while and then they bury them. Uh-huh. And so I make sure that I use something that won't leach into the soil. And uh, my other finish is a low VOC finish, kind of like a satiny finish. So yeah, everything is local, sustainable, and you know, pretty much biodegradable, except for like the the little cup that mm. holds the plant. We just take that out. Nice. Mm-hmm. So I always have to ask this question, but um, this is the this is a generational gap between CC and me that I recognize. <laughs> but, I spent so many years, you know, sort of fighting for women's rights. And when I asked Cece, it'll be curious to hear her answer again. Um, I asked her once, um, so it must have been tough, you know, in a man's woodworking world. And you've worked so hard to make a name for yourself. So tell me your response. Not really. (laughs) The the woodworking world is a very welcoming world. I think people who make stuff in general are pretty cool people. Mm -hmm. And at Los Angeles, especially the artist community here is very welcoming across, you know, all disciplines. I have a lot of different artist friends, you know, ceramicists or glass blowers or, you know, uh, 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 jewelry makers. Mm -hmm. So uh, and in the woodworking you know, the people that are my age and maybe a little older, I'm treated with total respect. I'm treated with respect at my uh, lumber yards. Nobody ever tries to talk down to me or mansplain. Um, some of the old duffers, sure. You know, they might be, I do things like a, a little bit differently than they do. And so they might give me the side eye, but you know, no one has been rude or I've had, haven't had any like overt sexism mm. i've been pretty lucky in that way but woodworkers are pretty cool people oh, i'm glad to hear that <laughs> cc's answer to white glass ceiling nancy <laughs> i love it it's a, a wonderful thing to have to have known um just kind of because ed and i are always curious but um what would you do with your time if you never had to work for a living i always think it gives us a little bit of a heartbeat about who people are Well, I think, you know, I've lived downtown since 2002. And so I've been a witness to the unhoused problem here in Los Mm -hmm. Angeles and how it has gotten worse and worse and worse. So I think that I would do more volunteering with outreach, um, you know, people who do outreach, like, you know, K-Town for All or SELA. I would do some more stuff with that because I don't have as much time for that as I would like, you know, running my own business and it's just me making everything and doing everything. Um, but I would, I would try to help that situation in Los Angeles. It is, um, because I've been here, it's very near and dear to my heart and it's, you know, it's becoming a really bad problem. And also I would probably take a lot more dance lessons. I, when I was little, my, I wanted to be a solid gold dancer. That's what, that's oh, what I wanted God. to be when I was a little Everybody. <laughs> so I would probably, yeah, I would probably take some, like, uh, some, maybe some private dance lessons so I wouldn't embarrass myself in, like, a class situation. But, yeah, <laughs> that's probably what I do. Well, the homelessness issue isn't one that's going to go away without us, a lot of people getting involved, right? Mm-hmm. We can't wait for others to fix this. It's not just going to go away. So um, I'm with you. Of course, um, I think that what you're doing to change the world 
is important and um, I'm anxious to see you pursue that. Um, what do you think is the next step for growing that business? Do you have plans to expand? I do, but not, I don't want to ever farm out the making of these urns to anybody. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, part of the fun for me is to make them. And like I was talking about before, the satisfaction that you have at the end of making something, making something beautiful and knowing where it's going. Sometimes clients share with me their stories of who this is going to and who it's for. Mm. Um, they share photos with me and mm. um, I, I love that aspect of it. I wouldn't want that client interface to go away. Yes. And I also wouldn't want my the artist part of it and the building to go away. I don't want to give that up to somebody else. I do have somebody who helps me with like milling and sanding, mm -hmm. um, but I don't want it to become a big, you know, the whole thing is these aren't mass produced urns, yes. you know? And so you know, people have offered me like, you know, some like startup money to, to, to do that. And it wouldn't be the same, yeah. you know, they wouldn't be the same quality. They wouldn't have as much heart in them. And it, you know, these are very personal, objects to people and they have a lot of meaning and i am i'm very empathetic to that about mm. what this means to people and you want somebody who cares behind that personal of a decision and so i would i would not give that up to somebody else i would i i have to keep control of that of knowing that you know I give a shit, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, I just, I have to say again, Cece, I think it's such a beautiful thing that you do. This, Thank this you. idea, I think you're providing a choice that's desperately needed in this field. Um, and, um, you know, as, as I lost my mother and I think that, um, the choices that we had were insufficient mm -hmm. and I, I think about that all the time. Um, so I think what you're doing is, um, meaningful and important and um i i'm rooting you on thank you <laughs> I, the emails that i get from people are so heartening you yeah. know that i get from people afterwards about how much it meant to them or you know they make me cry all the time i love it hmm. it's really it is it's a very rewarding place to be yeah so, yeah it's a you know so it's this complete accident that turned into a passion you know, how lucky for me. Well, that's a blessing, but you, mm -hmm. you were uh, there to take, take advantage of, uh, you know, the happy accident and mm -hmm. you recognize an opportunity. Again, I think Nancy and I are just like, yes, go Cece. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it. There. Well, Cece, um, it's really been fantastic having you as our guest. Um, I want to thank you for sharing your journey. Um, and um, I want to thank our listeners for um, listening. We look forward to bringing you more stories of remarkable individuals like Cece who are changing things up. Um, you can find Cece's beautiful work on her website, which is located at uh, boycestudios.com. That's B-O-Y-C-E studio.com. Um, she's also on Instagram at uh, boycestudio. As our own agent of change, catch us at www.yourchangelab.com coming this summer. Well, you'll soon find fun, online gamified courses and information making a difference to the nonprofit community. And watch for our announcement of our second episode soon. Thanks so much.